Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the continuing standoff over the debt ceiling with the threat of default looming on June the 1st. Joining us to discuss what the possibilities are that would enable Biden to call the House Republicans bluff is Stephanie Kelton, a professor of economics and public policy at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. She's the founder of the top-rated economic blog, New Economic Perspectives, a member of the Top Wonks Network of the Nation's Best Thinkers, and in 2016, Politico recognized her as one of the 50 people across the country most influencing the political debate. Previously, she served as the Chief Economist of the United States Senate Banking Committee and was an advisor to the Bernie Sanders 2016 and 2020 presidential campaigns. Her latest book is The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy, and we will discuss how to look at the debt and deficit, not in terms of the trillions piled up, but rather what the money was spent on, either as investments in the future or giveaways to the wealthiest Americans. Then we'll get an assessment of Sunday's elections in Turkey that will require a second round in two weeks, with President Erdogan likely to win running on an anti-American platform to remain in power and be even less constrained and more anti-democratic in his next term. Joining us is Nicholas Danforth, Senior Non-Resident Fellow at the Hellenic Foundation for European and Foreign Policy, previously a Senior Visiting Fellow at the German Marshall Fund, who has written widely about Turkey, U.S. foreign policy and and the Middle East. He was an editor at War on the Rocks, and the and is the author of the remaking of Republican Turkey, memory and modernity since the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Then finally, we'll look into the likelihood that as Trump begins his third run for the presidency, the mainstream media will repeat what they did in 2016 when they gave him up to five billion dollars in free advertising because he demands attention rather than earns it. We'll discuss how we are afflicted by not just a mad candidate, but by the possibility that countries can fall into the grip of madness, as Germany did in the 1930s. Joining us is Fred Turner, the Harry and Norman Chandler Professor of Communication at Stanford University. He's the author or co-author of five books, including Seeing Silicon Valley, Life Inside a Fraying America, the Democratic Surround, Multimedia and American Liberalism from World War II to the Psychedelic 60s, From Counterculture to Cyberculture, Stuart Brand, The Whole Earth Network, and The Rise of Digital Utopianism, and Echoes of Combat, The Vietnam War in America's Memory. He has written for newspapers and magazines ranging from the Boston Globe Sunday Magazine to Harper's. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, 
your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org. Contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Stephanie Kelton, who's a professor of economics and public policy at State University of New York at Stony Brook. She's the founder of the top-rated economic blog, New Economic Perspectives, a member of the Top Wonks Network of the Nation's Best Thinkers. And in 2016, Politico recognized her as one of the 50 people across the country most influencing the political debate. Previously, she served as the chief economist on the United States Senate Budget Committee and was an advisor to the Bernie Sanders 2016 and 2020 presidential campaigns. And her latest book is The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephanie Kelton. Nice to be back with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And we've seen what happened to the United Kingdom with Brexit, which was one of the most self-inflicted wounds in geopolitical history that paralyzed the entire country uh, to this day. Is something similar happening here, or could it happen? An amazing, you know, shooting yourself in the foot, in this case, shooting yourself in the head to default on America's debt, which would devastate our economy and the global economy and weakened America and undermined the strength of the dollar as a global reserve currency. It just seems inconceivable, but it's not out of the question. And in fact, at the CNN town hall featuring Donald Trump, he in fact urged the Freedom Caucus in the House, his, his allies there, to default. And they take him seriously and they follow his cue. So am I being alarmist here or could America... Is America poised, or, or at least elements in America poised, to inflict enormous and unnecessary harm on the United States? Well, I don't know. I think that, uh, you know, we have been through this before, similar sort of game of chicken and talk of default and all the rest of it. Uh, we have never defaulted, and I don't expect that we're going to default, but I think you're right that. You know, we've this is not the Congress of uh, three years ago. It's not the Congress of 10 years ago. So the elements are more radical, more extreme. Uh, and that does frighten me. But at the end of the day, and I, I think, you know, my expectation is that the debt ceiling will be lifted in time as it has always been lifted in the past Um and we will avoid default. But the question is, at what cost? You know, you just sort of enumerated some of the things that could happen if we were to default. And I guess where I am is I'm worrying about the kinds of things that will happen under a deal, uh, under a bad deal. Right. I mean, some of the things that Republicans are trying to extract by way of, you know, concessions from Democrats in exchange for a vote to lift the ceiling are enormously Dis, you know, painful, um, beyond disruptive to our economy. So uh, I'm I'm worried if we don't, and I'm worried if if we do see the the debt limit raised. But obviously, you know, it has to be increased. And so the question is, how much collateral damage accompanies some agreement to raise the debt ceiling limit? But the fact that Biden's even negotiating seems to me to be a, a failure, because. 
there's nothing to negotiate. It's you know the last time it happened in 2011, the speaker then John Boehner referred to what was the precursor to the Freedom Caucus, the the Tea Party, um, as legislative terrorists, and you don't negotiate with terrorists. So I don't understand why Biden and his administration have allowed this thing to get this far, where you actually have to negotiate and possibly compromise. And, and, and we know what they want. The Freedom Caucus wants to completely undo Biden's agenda, particularly when it comes to doing something about global warming and renewables, getting off the fossil fuel economy. Yeah, but the problem is that nobody has clean hands in this. Joe Biden, when he was in the Senate, did not vote in favor of lifting the debt ceiling limit when it needed to be increased. Barack Obama famously withheld his vote to lift the debt ceiling uh, when he was in the Senate. And many Democrats, when it's been, you know, their turn to sort of weaponize or try to use this moment to extract something for their constituents, they've done so as well. So it is time to rip the Band-Aid right off. I, I wish that that's what President Biden was doing when he was asked whether he would be in favor of abolishing the debt limit altogether. He said no. So that would be irresponsible. That is disappointing. It is time to rip this Band-Aid off. We are one of two countries in the world that has this kind of debt limit. And the other one is Denmark, and they don't use it the way we do. So we're really the only one. You know, Australia imposed a debt limit uh, in the wake of the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, and their government voted to put in a, a debt limit, more or less like we have here in the U.S. By 2013, they abolished it because it was insane, and they quickly figured out that if they left this thing in place, it was going to be weaponized, it was going to be used in precisely the ways that we're seeing it used in the U.S. today, and they didn't want to end up like us. So they said, we made a mistake, let's get rid of it. And that's what I wish we would do as well. But it's not in the cards, at least not right now. But is there a counter leverage that Biden has? In other words, the Republicans are weaponizing the debt ceiling, this antiquated 1917 piece of legislation that is, you say, should be abolished and should never have had the influence it has, but it's still around and both sides have weaponized it. But if the Freedom Caucus would dominate McCarthy, he's not like Boehner, at least Boehner was able to end the 2011 standoff. I don't see uh, McCarthy having that kind of influence because he had to concede so much that only one of these crazies can call for his resignation. So does Biden have any counter leverage? Because there's a lot of discussion about using the 14th Amendment or, or simply ignoring them and carrying on and, and paying the bills. Or in some cases, Paul Krugman and others are talking about minting a trillion dollar platinum coin or something. Yeah. So there are uh, some options available to the executive branch should it wish to uh, uphold the law, <laughs> which I... I think we should all agree ought to be uh, the the thing that you would try to do first, right? You you've been given a set of instructions by Congress to spend monies. Previous Congresses have 
authorize various programs, everything ranging from, you know, veterans uh, benefits to Social Security and Medicare reimbursements to healthcare providers and so forth, paying government contractors, paying interest to bondholders and all the rest of it. The government is on the hook for, you know, trillions of dollars in payments that must be made. Now, Congress has also said with the debt limit, we don't want the number of U.S. treasuries, notes, bills, bonds, right, these government securities, we don't want that number to go above a certain limit. Currently, that limit is about $31.4 trillion. So Congress is saying, we don't want you to issue any more treasuries. Okay, so now you have a choice. You're supposed to spend, but you're not supposed to facilitate the spending by issuing new government, call it debt, right? By issuing new uh, treasuries. So what do you do? You're not allowed to do it the way you normally do it, but you have these other options and you just listed some of them. One option would be to mint this platinum coin, put a face value of a trillion dollars on it and carry on meeting obligations on time in full without defaulting. There are other things some people have talked about, including issuing a different kind of instrument that's not subject to the debt limit. So Treasury could issue something that people have called a premium bond. That gets a little bit technical. I could explain it, but uh, it's a workaround. Okay. And so I think that what uh, Paul Krugman and others have been exploring are ways for the Biden administration to avoid the hostage taking, to say, no, go ahead and refuse to raise the debt limit if that's what you are you know, hell bent on doing, but you're not gonna force us into default because we have these other options available to us. We can meet our legal obligation, constitutional obligation to carry out the payments co Congress has authorized, and we can follow this debt limit rule and not issue the particular type of instrument that uh, you've asked us not to issue. And I think those ought to very much be on the table. I know that Secretary Yellen has been asked whether uh, Treasury is contemplating any of these workarounds, and she's insisting that the only sort of credible way forward is for Congress to do what it's always done in the past. I was on a program earlier this morning with the Deputy Treasury Secretary. He said the same thing. I hope that behind the scenes uh, they are thinking and planning um, for, for a scenario whereby the, the Republicans don't, at the end of the day, uh, agree to raise the limit and that they're prepared to do, you know, as Mario Draghi once said, the former president of the European Central Bank, when all hell was breaking loose in debt markets in uh, the Eurozone, Mario Draghi finally said, listen, we're gonna do whatever it takes to hold things together. And I think that this is a moment where the treasury needs to be prepared to do whatever it takes. So Biden is supposed to meet again with McCarthy and I, th I think the other congressional leaders as well tomorrow, Tuesday, and their teams are still negotiating. So, and I, as I mentioned earlier, my sense is that even negotiating is, is, is a failure on the part of the Biden administration, but if, you know, as you say, nobody's clean on this, even though they keep talking about a clean bill, what do you think they're negotiating and what possible compromise could Biden offer? And more to the point, what possible compromise would uh, the Freedom Caucus in the House accept? 
Yeah, I don't know the answer to your last question. And to the former, I only know, you know, the little bits that sort of dribble out as the people in the, you know, reporters whose job it is to cover this stuff and to give us details as they trickle out um, from various parties. And so what do we know? Um, we know that there are discussions surrounding work requirements and that Republicans are looking to make it more onerous on people who are already struggling a lot in this economy, uh, in this country, to put food on the table and to meet their you know, minimum basic needs. So they're looking at programs like Medicaid, uh, food assistance programs, what we call SNAP, nutrition programs, uh, they want to make make it more onerous for people to get those benefits by attaching work requirements and that sort of thing. So, you know, sometimes you hear people say the cruelty is the point. That's an example of um, negotiating uh, to to gain concessions around programs that they just frankly don't like. And so that's the kind of stuff that we're hearing about. Well, I guess the fact that in the last recent uh, Trump four years, my understanding is he contributed something like 40% of the debt that we now have, something, I can't remember the exact number, of trillions of dollars from the very beginning of the United States. The idea that one president has contributed so much and he's now the, the head of the Republican Party and clearly the front runner. So any possibility of mentioning that and saying, you know, how could you guys be talking about the debt when, in fact, the debt limit has nothing to do with the debt in any case. It's what we've, the bills that we've already incurred. But can you make, can you in any way shame these people into recognizing how much their champion, Donald Trump, was given a clean uh, debt ceiling bill on, I think, three or four occasions, wasn't he, uh, at the same time running up the debt astronomically? All right. So, yeah, here's the problem with that for me, you know, and I, I admit, readily admit that I look at this from a vantage point that is somewhat unique. Uh, I don't want to shame the Republicans for increasing the debt. I'm happy to be critical of specific policies that were pursued under the Trump administration. I didn't like, for example, the tax cuts that were passed in 2017. These were, you know, enormous tax cuts that increased the deficit, that added to the debt, ultimately added something like $1.9 trillion to deficits. I don't mind the fact that they increased the deficit. What bothers me is that the tax cuts benefited overwhelmingly people in this country who are already doing phenomenally well. 83% of the benefits, uh, personal income tax cuts and so forth, went to the people in the top 1% of the income distribution. So I would have been very happy to see that 1.9 trillion in increased deficits be used to, I don't know, uh, better fund schools and infrastructure and healthcare and R&D and a whole range of other programs. So it's not the deficit per se or the increase in the debt, it's for whom and for what those deficits were being used. And don't forget also, I think, Ian, it's you got to, you know, recognize that so much of the increase in the debt under the Trump administration was COVID induced. Would have happened under anyone. It wasn't, you know, a consequence of bad public policy. I mean, the 
first piece of legislation was that CARES Act that was passed in March of 2020 when Donald Trump was president. It was a $2.2 trillion fiscal package aimed at supporting unemployed people, right? That top up from the federal government, $600 a week extra for people who lost jobs in the pandemic. Those $1,400, no, they were 12. The first ones were $1,200 checks that went to most people in this country. The payroll protection program that was designed to help keep workers on payroll and attached to their employers and on and on and on. That's that's 2.2 trillion that happened under Donald Trump and then another 900 billion December of the same year and you know uh you, the economy goes down because of a global pandemic and the deficit is going to increase and the debt's going to increase so i don't want to vilify those outcomes per se but i'll happily you know um critique specific policy choices well excuse me for making a asking a facile question <laughs> about a political gotcha when you have actually answered in a way that is much more important, and that is it's debts and deficits are exaggerated and, and demagogued, and the reality is it's what you spend the money on, and there, there are virtuous and necessary things to spend the money on and you know unnecessary and wasteful things like tax cuts to the super-rich. Exactly. Because when Democrats get in this tit for tat and the finger pointing and, you know, they did it with George Bush, right? Because um, Bill Clinton, when he was president, the, he, you know, presided over the budget moving into surplus for the first time in my lifetime. And then Bill Clinton leaves office and George W. Bush comes in and, uh, you know, all of a sudden we have deficits again. And Democrats love to point the finger at George Bush and say, you know, what did you do? We left you with these beautiful surpluses and you came in and, you know, uh, sh shot them all away with your tax cuts and all this, you know, expansion of Medicare, the prescription drug plan and so forth uh, and the wars, uh, obviously. And so, again, it's another example of being able to say wh which which of the policies under the Bush administration did we not favor, you know, which which do we want to take issue with, um, but not just on the grounds that they moved the budget from surplus to deficit? Because the problem is eventually Democrats are going to get in office and then they're going to want to be able to pass, you know, legislation that may increase the deficit. They're going to be sitting in those seats, you know, with control of the White House or one or both houses of Congress. And the deficit is going to be there and the debt is going to increase. So you might as well not vilify these things because they're going to happen on your watch as well. Well, Stephanie Colton, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Well, thanks for having me back. And again, I've been speaking with Stephanie Colton, who's a professor of economics and public policy at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. She's a founder of the top-rated economic blog, New Economic Perspectives, a member of the Top Wonks Network of the Nation's Best Thinkers, and in 2016, Politico recognized her as one of the 50 people across the country most influencing the political debate. Previously, she served as the chief economist on the United States Senate Budget Committee and was an advisor to the Bernie Sanders 2016 and 2020 presidential campaigns. And her latest book is the Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory, and the Birth of the People's Economy. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of Sunday's elections in Turkey that will now require a second round in two weeks with President Erdogan likely to win running on an anti-American platform. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Nicholas Danforth, who's a senior non-resident fellow at the Hellenic Foundation for European and Foreign Policy. Previously was a senior visiting fellow at the German Marshall Fund. He's written widely about Turkey, U.S. foreign policy, and the Middle East. He's the editor at War on the Rocks and the author of The Remaking of Republican Turkey, Memory and Modernity Since the Fall of the Ottoman Empire. Welcome to Background Briefing. Nicholas. Dan. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. And I guess uh, the fall of the Sultan, <laughs> meaning Erdogan, has not happened, right? Were no. the uh, the pundits and, and the opposition just guilty of wishful thinking? Or uh, is there any way that Erdogan could be defeated in a second run in the uh, runoff, which is coming up, what, in a couple of weeks? Right. I mean, it's important to say this definitely isn't over. There are two weeks uh, till the final uh, the final round of this. The opposition is insisting that they haven't lost hope. They don't want their supporters to lose hope. Uh, but the math is certainly looking a lot more difficult uh, for them than people were hoping. Uh, amongst a lot of us who were watching this election in the United States, the debate was whether the opposition could win in the first round, the opposition might win in the second round, and then if they won, would Erdogan try to steal the election? Uh, and it looked like all of that came to naught. It doesn't look like uh, Erdogan will even be faced with that choice. Uh, based on the current trends, he's, you know, I hate to say, in a position to win the election fairly two weeks from now. And he was just shy of the 50%, right, at 49.51. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that very easily looks like it could have gone uh, with him winning in the first round. So what could be the role of the ultra-nationalist Sinan Ogan? He got 5.17%, and that, of course, is the difference. Does that make him the kingmaker? I can't see him necessarily making a deal with the opposition, which is probably too far to the left for him. And would Erdogan make a deal with him to get his 5%? You know, again, given that Erdogan goes into the second round having the momentum, uh, you have to assume that for someone in Sinan's position, there'd be a lot more incentive to make a deal with Erdogan. It looks like he's certainly going to have a lot more favors to distribute. Um, you know, from what I understand of Sinan's politics, he thinks that Erdogan is too religious and he thinks that the rest of the opposition is too liberal. Uh, and so, th- you know, the opposition was hoping, was banking on uh, left-wing Kurdish votes to come to power. Sinan Oan has made it very clear that he doesn't want to be part of any coalition in which these Kurds are participating. Uh, so it makes it the math very difficult for the opposition to try to win over his votes without losing uh, the Kurdish constituents who came out in mass to help get them, you know, as high as they did in the last round. Um, you know, and it just it based on the politics of a lot of the people who seem to have voted uh, for this third party candidate, you know, and how few of them would have to break for Erdogan uh, in order for Erdogan to win. Again, it just looks like the math, it looks like the politics, and it looks like the ideological currents, this kind of angry right-wing nationalism, is all pointed in Erdogan's direction. So, Nicholas Danforth, what then happened to Kutsala's campaign? He obviously is the opposite of Erdogan. He's a scholarly, quiet gentleman, not the kind of demagogue that Erdogan is. I mentioned the possibility of too much wishful thinking. What's your diagnosis of why he didn't do as well as people were either expecting or hoping? You know, right. For so long, there's been so much frustration amongst the opposition, so much self-criticism for its inability to get its act together, its inability to get united. 
even when Kalich Daralu was nominated as the candidate, there was a lot of frustration, uh, precisely because, as you said, he has he's a much more mild-mannered, he has a bureaucratic background, he really was running uh, temperamentally as the anti-Erdogan. People thought that folks like the mayor of Istanbul, Ekrem Imamoglu, would be a more compelling, a more, uh, in a way, Erdogan-esque candidate. Um, you know, the opposition settled on Kalich Daralu. There was a lot of frustration. At the end of the day, everyone uh, consolidated behind him, except that, you know, best from the analysis I've seen, some of the tension was that, you know, he was responsible in order to beat Erdogan for holding together a coalition, uh, which included some really uh, devout Turkish nationalists, some uh, folks who were really angry at the Kurdish political movement, and also members of that Kurdish political movement. Uh, and so I don't, you know, and so you can criticize him, you can criticize the party, but in that way, you know, to really hold together such a diverse coalition, he had a very difficult task. And I think, unfortunately, what seems to have happened is some of the more liberal positions he took, his willingness to cooperate with the Kurdish party, uh, made him vulnerable from right-wing nationalists. And some of them seem to have defected uh, to join uh, Sinan Owen, the, uh, the third party uh, candidate. But you mentioned a better candidate. Wasn't he jailed by Erdogan? Uh, well, and so this is where, you know, I'm glad you brought this up because as you know, and earlier when I was talking about it, I said it looks like Erdogan's going to win fairly and I regret not caveating that. You know, I mean, fairly in the sense that from what we've seen, the ballots will be counted accurately and whoever has the most ballots will win. But right, it's uh, worth mentioning, and this, you bring up an excellent example, this isn't going to be fair in any you know, democratic understanding of the word. Uh, at the end, the mayor of Istanbul wasn't jailed, uh, but there was a court decision that could have paved the way for him to be jailed. Uh, that was timed right when the uh, opposition party was deciding who to run as a candidate. It could have resulted in the courts banning uh, the mayor of Istanbul from running as a candidate. Uh, you know, many, the, almost the entirety of the Kurdish political movement's leadership is in jail, has been in jail for the better part of the decade. Uh, to not even going into the media control. I mean, it's not, for all those reasons, I mean, the amount of authoritarian power that Erdogan has to manipulate all aspects of the election, all aspects of the media going into this, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's just an unavoidable part of the conversation. Well, this was, of course, highlighted by the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which did mention the unjustified advantage that Erdogan had. It praised uh, the high turnout, but said the vote was clearly uh, conducted on an unlevel playing field. And it, they singled out, as you just did then, Nicholas, the biased media coverage, since Erdogan dominates the media, and the intimidation of pro-Kurdish parties and the jailing of their leaders, but what about the philanthropist Osman Kavala? What, what happened there? He was also being jailed. And how significant is that? And that's another point. I think when you look at, you know, this is the result is depressing for a lot of us who didn't like Erdogan for a lot of reasons. But, you know, particularly for people like Osman Kavala, like Salahattin Demirtas, the leader of the Kurdish political movement, you know, who've been in jail for years, uh, for whom... You know, the election was a chance, you know, Turkey was going to return to a more democratic system more broadly. It was also a chance for these people and so many others like them to get out of jail. And so the amount of hope that, you know, their family members had that's now been dashed um, is depressing. And at some level, when you look at, you know, Osman Kavala, when you look at 
Salatin Demirtas. I mean, it's some sense what this vote came down to. It looks like is there were people who, for all you know, their frustrations with a lot of other things that were going on in Turkey, for all their disagreements uh, with Erdogan about other issues, maybe some of whom were unhappy with the way he handled the earthquake. You know, at the end of the day, these people bought into Erdogan's narrative uh, about Turkey being under attack from the West, bought into Erdogan's narrative about why it was important uh, to see people like Osman Kavala and Demirtas in jail. Uh, and at some level, you know, even with the economy in shambles, a lot of them seem to have gone to the polls and said, you know, they'd rather keep someone like Kavala and Demirtas in jail than, you know, repair relations with the West, even if that hurt them financially. Well, it sounds like the same in Putin's Russia. You know, Putin's got the Russian people convinced that America's the enemy. And that's happened, of course, all the way across the, the so-called global south. So do you think that the wars in the Middle East, Iraq and Afghanistan, have they affected the image of the United States? In, in the, we know it has in a lot of the world, but in Turkey in particular. I mean, has Erdogan been able to convince the people as I believe he believes, that the U.S. was behind the coup against him back in 2016, and the first person to call Erdogan then, after once he wasn't shot and he escaped, was Vladimir Putin, and Obama called him four days later. Well, and I think you bring up all these issues, which, uh, you know, for those of us in the United States, who are often very critical of the United States' own foreign policy— um, you know, very critical of things like the Iraq war. What's always odd to make sense of with Erdogan is that you look at his frustrations with the West and they bring together such a strange set of things, which, you know, for a lot of liberal or left wing Americans, we'd be sympathetic to his criticisms about Western hypocrisy or destabilizing Western actions in the Middle East, uh, you know, and then also brings a whole different set of kind of right wing Turkish or Islamist criticisms uh, that are very hard for us, you know, as American liberals to stomach. You know, so yeah, I mean, the invasion of Iraq was certainly something that caused enormous anger in Turkey that I think actually had an underappreciated role in uh, driving anti-Americanism uh, in Turkey. You know, but then when it comes to what uh, specifically Turkey was angry about with the United States' involvement in Iraq and Syria, it's the United States' support for uh, Kurdish groups that were facing profound oppression in either under Saddam Hussein, either under Assad, or in Turkey. Um, by the same token, you know, as I, the historian of U.S. foreign policy, I've written a lot about what I think is some fairly duplicitous, hypocritical U.S. policies towards democracy, uh, specifically in Turkey. You know, the United States' role, not in, you know, supporting behind the scenes, as we did do elsewhere, uh, but in coming to terms with governments that came to power through military coups in Turkey, I think is a shameful one as an American. You know, and yet the irony is that now what Erdogan seized on and what really makes him angry is the supposed American involvement in this 2016 coup attempt that actually there's no evidence America was involved in at all. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's a mix of concerns where you can kind of say, you know, as much as I dislike him, I see where he's coming from. And then other concerns where you think, you know, you just can't help getting infuriated by the fact that these are really the issues that seem to be driving decision-making in Ankara. Well, indeed, the 2016 coup was so incompetent, you know, <laughs> I'm sure well, like they, think we would have done it better if we'd organized it. That's what I was about to say, although that, you know, I'm not not endorsing the CIA in any way. So what's going to happen? Is, is there any possibility that Erdogan will be in any way chastened and restrained by the fact that the opposition got close to 45 percent of the vote 
Uh, no, I mean, I don't see him being chastened. I don't see him being restrained. I think what we're going to get both domestically and in the foreign policy realm is a hell of a lot more Erdogan. Uh, I think he's going to feel vindicated by the fact that he still won decis- so decisively. You know, the fact that the um, political currents seem to be moving even further towards the right, uh, the fact that he seems to have gotten a mandate to continue what has long been his confrontational approach with the West. Uh, this is... Um, yeah, I mean, the fact that he now has an economic crisis of growing magnitude to deal with, I think may constrain him a little bit. You know, but at the end of the day, that's already been going on. And it seems like the lesson he's taken from voters is that they're more concerned with him continuing the foreign and domestic policies they like than you know they are with the economic situation. That could change if it gets really bad. But you know, so far, that seems to be the lesson. But do they like the fact that he's embracing Putin? I thought, to some extent, Russia was a traditional enemy of Turkey. Well, and that, you know, that really has been a remarkable shift. I don't think, uh, to be clear, anyone, you know, the way people in Turkey have put it very bluntly is, you know, they seem, they see themselves as having been overly dependent, overly subordinate to the United States for the entirety of the Cold War. And what they say is we don't want to replace that kind of subordination with a new subordination to Russia, uh, but we're really trying to pursue a more independent foreign policy. And to the extent that for the reasons we've talked about, Erdogan really sees America and the West is what's still threatening Turkey, what's still constraining its freedom of movement, what's still the biggest, I mean, Erdogan's literally said the biggest threat to Turkey comes from the West. Uh, In that context, Putin, you know, to him and to a lot of people around him has looked like the more reliable partner. So looking at a map of the votes in terms of Turkey's provinces, it's somewhat similar in a way to the United States where you've got all the red states in the middle and the, and the south and then the urban blue states are on the coast and, and in the urban centers. And that seems to be similar to what just happened in the vote in Turkey. And of course, along with the coastal you know, urban centers voting against Erdogan, you also have the Kurdish bloc in the, uh, in the southeast so do you see any similarities there, just in closing? Um, you know, as a, someone who's always enjoyed maps, I mean, the visual similarities that you mentioned are indeed striking, um, you know, but in terms of in terms of trying to draw some kind of deeper, uh, deeper parallel to what that represents, I'd, um, I'd struggle to do it off the cuff. I'm sure I'll come up with a great one once we've signed off, but it's definitely visually it's a striking similarity. But it, would the similarity be that the core constituency for the Republicans in the red states is often the religious right, fundamentalist and Christian conservatives? Yeah, and, I mean, if you uh, wanted that, certainly at that level in terms of right-wing nationalism, in terms of conservatism, I mean, it's almost striking to see how some of the political issues in the United States and Turkey have come to, uh, have come to overlap. Um, the amount of homophobic rhetoric that Erdogan used in the last election um, you know, which comes from a conservative religious place at some level in his uh, background, but was just never part of the Turkish political discourse. Um, you know, that's something that uh, that Turkey has, you know, now makes Turkey seem much more similar to the United States. And yeah, well, but you've got that, you've got hmm? don't you have also the more pious people in the in the middle of the country in the countryside, the ones that appreciate the fact that he allowed the women to wear scarves or encouraged them to wear scarves, et cetera? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, in the, the geographic distribution of um, more pious, more conservative voters being in the more rural areas, that parallel certainly holds up. Um, although, again, you know, as people said with Trump, I mean, what's also while that as a generalization is true, I mean, you look at the votes in the cities, uh, you know, in Turkey, and it's actually even in places that we would think of as being more liberal and more cosmopolitan. Um, you see the discrepancy actually isn't quite as striking as uh, as it could be. You know, there are a lot of people, I mean, I think it was 52-48 uh, in favor of the opposition in uh, in Istanbul last time. But, you know, that's still, it's pretty close. Right. Well, but just in the just in the last couple of minutes, the the broader issues here surely are that, or you just mentioned how Erdogan is going to be more Erdogan, more repressive. So you've got this kind of coalition, if you will, of authoritarian kleptocrats like Erdogan and Putin and and Trump, who shares their their values, if that's the right word. So if Trump comes back, then <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> That's a nightmare coalition, is it not? Well, you know, one of the things that's always been fascinating to me, I mean, yeah, Trump and Erdogan certainly uh, got on great. Every once in a while they didn't, and that was uh, dramatic. But for the most part, exactly. I mean, that coalition of, you know, they understood that they had a shared worldview. They understood that in some cases they hated some of the same people. You know, almost felt like their hatred for the New York Times was sometimes what brought their supporters together. Um, I do wonder, though, you know, if, all right, Trump was kind of sui generis in a lot of ways. You have a lot of other Republican candidates, you know, I mean, striking Pompeo, I guess, isn't going to be in the race now. But at the end of his time as Secretary of State, one of the few places in which he broke from Trump was in trying to be much more anti-Erdogan uh, and trying to make a much stronger stance. And, you know, I wonder, you do have that alliance of right-wing kleptocrats at the same time, you know, you've got um, Islamophobic Christian nationalists and anti-Christian Islamic nationalists. Uh, and as much as in some ways they have a hell of a lot of similarities, uh, you know, that the differences that the divide them are crucial to their identities. And so I actually do think if someone besides Trump who runs uh, and wins as a Republican in the future, uh, they may have much more difficulty getting along with Erdogan than uh, than Trump did. Well, Nicholas Danforth, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Always a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Nicholas Danforth, who's a senior non-resident fellow at the Hellenic Foundation for European and Foreign Policy. Previously, he was a senior visiting fellow at the German Marshall Fund. He's written widely about Turkey, U.S. foreign policy, and the Middle East. He's the editor-at-large of he's the editor of large at War on the Rocks and the author of the remaking of Republican Turkey: Memory and Modernity Since the Fall of the Ottoman Empire. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing how we are afflicted by not just a mad candidate, but the possibility that countries can fall into the grip of madness as Germany did in the 1930s.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Fred Turner, the Harry and Norma Chandler Professor of Communication at Stanford University. He's the author and co-author of a number of books, including Seeing Silicon Valley, Life Inside Afraid America, The Democratic Surround, Multimedia and American Liberalism from World War II to the Psychedelic 60s, From Counterculture to Cyberculture, Stuart Brand, The Whole Earth Network, and The Rise of Digital Utopianism, and Echoes of Combat, The Vietnam War in American Memory. And he's written for newspapers and magazines ranging from the Boston Globe Sunday Magazine to Harper's. Welcome to Background Briefing, Fred Turner. Thanks, Ian. Really delighted to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Fred. And did you happen to watch uh, the CNN town hall last week with Donald Trump? I've only seen I've only seen snippets of it. I was so repelled by what what snippets I saw that I declined to expose myself to the whole thing. But unfortunately, the country is going to be exposed to the front runner on the Republican side, and even polls indicate that he that some one poll, ABC Washington Post poll, has him six points ahead of Biden. So. Do you think that we're going to go through a repeat of what happened in 2016, where, according to the New York Times, Trump was given at least $2 billion worth of free advertising by the mainstream media. Other accounts have given him up to $5 billion. So are we repeating history here? Oh, I think we are. And I, I think that you're, you've got your finger on something really important. It's not simply that he's getting lots of free advertising, which Biden will also get from his bully pulpit. Um, it's that the particular way that Trump asserts authority is deeply in sync with the media industries, especially the, the advertising industry. He creates controversy. He projects a bizarre but nonetheless authentic personality. Um, he's a character. He creates stories constantly. You, you put down your cell phone for a moment and he's, he's ginned up another controversy. And of course, that's catnip to the advertising industry because it keeps eyeballs glued to the screen. But it's also essentially the business model of social media, is it not? Engagement through enragement. <laughs> yes, it is engagement through enragement. Uh, you know, the thing that I find most interesting about the enragement part is it's not just at the moment when you encounter a particularly enraging piece of data. It's the way that you can take um, a story or a character like Trump and circulate his image, circulate his stories on your personal network as signs of membership in that network. So you can display yourself as MAGA. He provides you with a whole identity, an identity kit, as do other social movements, but it's a very powerful one. And it's one that lets folks who might otherwise be disenfranchised from the media universe imagine themselves partaking of the kind of um, expressive presentational power that someone like Donald Trump has. It's a weird kind of authoritarian style. So let's talk about some of the research you've done at Stanford on the parallels between Trump's leadership style and that of Benito Mussolini's early rule in the 1920s Italy. Yeah, so 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 Trump's a fascinating case, and you know I, I was early in calling him a, a, a new kind of fascist, and people thought I'd, I'd I'd fallen off the off the truck. But um, when he won the presidency, they were less <laughs> fallen thought I'd fallen off the truck. You know. It's so interesting. Fascism in the early 20th century, Mussolini, Hitler, otherwise, um, very personality driven, very much about being able to use the media to project a particular style. In the early 20th century, Mussolini's era, the 30s, that style was industrial. It was commanding. It was hierarchical. You could, if you had lived then and not yet through the war, you might have imagined Mussolini or even Hitler as a kind of industrial figure, a leader, a powerful commander of men. Trump 
arose in a different era and, and has generated a different kind of charisma. Trump arose in an era of um, reality television, an era of the internet, an era of plain old commercial TV, an era in which claiming attention is the key to wealth and to some degree political power. And he's a master of claiming and managing attention. And he has a style of charisma that is as appropriate to our moment as Mussolini or Hitler's charisma might have been to theirs. It's a post-industrial mediated style of charisma, a constant flickering signaling of um, here, pay attention here. It's in that context that people don't get upset about the fact that he's essentially been convicted of assaulting a woman because somehow that doesn't even feel real. It's yet another um, reason we should pay attention to the man. And the fact that we should pay attention to him turns him into a kind of authoritarian lighthouse. He's, his charisma is the charisma of someone who can attract that much attention. He must be valuable. He must be important. After all, we're all staring. Well, on yesterday's program, uh, Fred, I, I had uh, Miles Taylor on, who was anonymous, mm. the first insider in the Trump White House to uh, go public via the New York Times about Trump's unsuitability. And he got into more detail about who this man really is and how he operated in the White House as the President of the United States. And it's a frightening picture of, of a psychotic, sadistic, out-of-touch, completely unqualified, reckless, foolish, uneducated, ignorant man who is so dangerous. And apparently, with all these White House insiders, they all agreed with it, including the chief of staff, John Kelly, the Marine General, Mattis, all of them, Barr, and to some extent Barr is going public. Do you think it's possible that if all of the people who actually were inside the Oval Office and saw Trump up, up close and personal and how he operated, if they were to go public collectively, could they penetrate that bubble and influence the people who have been beguiled by Trump and you know those that were cheering him on in the audience the, the other night on the CNN yeah, Town Hall? I, I wish I could say yes. Um, but I don't think so. I, I think that they would be read by Trump enthusiasts as yet greater examples of the swamp that Trump has sent to clear out. You know, the, the sort of the, the world that you and I inhabit, a world of fact checking, a world of empirical testability. That's not the world that Trump supporters are inhabiting. Trump supporters are inhabiting a world in which there is evil, there is good, there is a hero who can take on evil um, and evil is housed in the government. Evil is, is in fact, the government itself. And we've just got to tear it all down and free individuals to be themselves. And of course, who is most himself at all times? Trump. And what does power look like in that world? It looks like um, a kind of narcissistic, magnet magnetic attention seeking. You know, exactly what you point to as the flaw that his staffers would acknowledge is what makes him weirdly attractive in a hypermediated universe like the one that he inhabits today. Um, and so I, 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 no, I don't, I don't think that would work. What do I think would work? I think what would work is if um, Biden would speak more directly to the concerns that uh, Trump is trying to manage among working class folks, especially um, in this kind of personalized idiom. And, and Biden does this when he campaigns, but very, very little elsewise. You know, he needs to talk to unions. He needs to talk to the working class. 
He needs to talk about economic issues. He needs to talk about the disenfranchisement of the American worker. He needs to talk about these ridiculous wars that we've been in for 20 years, started by both or, or proposed, continued by both Republicans and, and Democrats. When he addresses the actual issues, then I think we can begin to have an alternative vision. If our vision is simply Trump is evil and we can show you how, they've heard all that before, and that's not going to help. So some of it came just recently from the former Attorney General William Barr, who tried through Fox News to tell the MAGA world that the promises that Trump is making on the campaign trail, he'll never fulfill them because he's incapable of uh, anything but chaos. That mm -hmm. doesn't work. I don't think it works. No, I, I, so I, I think it doesn't, it, do, it, it, it doesn't match a couple of key elements of what we might call a credibility structure that Trump has somehow created. So in, in Trump world, Trump is the creative master of constant spinning agitation. Barr looks like a toady in that world from that perspective. He's dull. He's official. He holds his position. He has empirical evidence. Um, he's just not able to play in the new way. And I, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's the issue. I think that people who are supporting Trump, many who are supporting Trump, are not supporting Trumpian policies. They're supporting Trump the man in the hope that he will be able to do whatever magical things need to be done. And it's in this respect that he most resembles Mussolini or Hitler. They, you know, Germans and Italians in the earlier eras absolutely supported the man in the hope that the policies would follow, even if they weren't sure what the policies should be. So in other words, Fred Turner, what liberals think would disqualify Trump only makes him stronger. I think that's exactly right. And I think at the same time, liberals have failed, and I, I would count myself as a liberal, so I just want to say with Saddam on here, you know, I think liberals have failed to generate an, uh, an optimistic, forward-looking social vision that genu is genuinely inclusive. We talk about inclusion all the time on the left, but the terms of our inclusion are, genu are generally oriented around um, race and sex, which are both really important, but which tend not to include the working-class folks, the folks who fight our wars, the um, folks in rural areas. We need a much more inclusive vision on the left, and we need a series of um, you know, pro-American in the deepest sense policies that say, we're for you. We're not just for elites. We're for you. We need to propose a positive vision. That's what I think will work. So, Fred, why do you think, though, so many Americans have become so alienated from their political system? I know we don't have social democracy here in the United States where people vote for politicians that deliver government services, and you vote for people who are good stewards of your tax money. We vote for all kinds of strange reasons, um, you know, <laughs> yes, to, you not, to, not necessarily about kitchen table issues, even though they keep arguing that we do. That the kitchen table issues are important. So, do you have any idea of why people have become so alienated? Because there's still a possibility I, I, that Donald Trump could become the next president. Oh, I very much agree with that. I, I think people have become alienated, but on a time scale that we've stopped recognizing. The alienation that I see today began toward the end of the Vietnam War. It began in a world where working class Americans went to fight in Vietnam and college based Americans were able to avoid the draft and protest the war. That, that split that starts right then, when you start having, in 1972, I believe, hard hats marching for Nixon and college kids growing their hair and trying to live differently, that split haunts us today. And it, you, when, you, when you see who's 
um, who's fighting from where, you can often see that it's, it's a college-educated left um, and the set of ideas about what the left should be that emerge in that movement that are driving the left today. And it's very much a kind of muscular, masculinist, Christian, um, hard hat sort of vision of the kind that supported Nixon in the early days that's driving a lot of the right. I, I think that's where the battle begins. And I think it's been going on for 30 or 40 years. and It's taking a particular shape now, um, but it's a much longer battle. So given that so many Americans are alienated from politics and presumably from politicians, how uh, is Joe Biden going to fare? Because he is a professional politician with a long, long career. Yeah, I don't know how Biden's going to fare, and I, I, I hesitate to predict. You know, he surprised me before, and I, I hope he surprises me again and, and does real well. I think that people, I want to take a little bit of issue with the idea that people don't trust politicians. I think they may not trust politicians whom they don't know, but they trust leaders who represent their interests. And I think that's really important. And I think both on the left and the right, we've seen Congress people in particular, but others as well, betray our interests. It's very hard, even with Biden, whom I admire a great deal and will vote for, it's very hard if you're a climate activist to stay excited about Biden when he auctions off large chunks of the Arctic uh, for drilling. And these kinds of things are, are, are super powerful. It's very hard as on the Republican side to stay excited about politicians when they, they launch unnecessary wars in Iraq or keep us for a very long time in Afghanistan, and it's your kids who are doing the fighting. We've been betrayed by politicians on the left and the right for a very long time. It's very hard to keep that confidence up. Where I do see confidence is in local leaders, with whom people will know, and in people who uh, maybe are a little bit up the chain from there, people like AOC, who represent clearly articulated views held by very clearly defined constituencies. If we can get more of that, I think we might survive. But just in the last minute, countries are capable of shooting themselves in the foot, oh. as the Brits have done with Brexit. And, and the House Republicans, led by the Freedom Caucus, are about to shoot us in the foot uh, with the debt ceiling. And Trump, in the CNN town hall, urged them to default. And I don't see how McCarthy can control these people. So is it possible that countries can also sort of go mad? If we're talking about a mad, a mad candidate for presidency, couldn't the country also go mad? Oh, without question. I mean, we've seen that in Germany. We've seen that in Italy. We've seen it in Japan. They can go mad for a generation or two or three. And, and that's a really terrifying prospect. So the challenge now is uh, to really develop an alternative vision. You know, when you look back at Germany in the 30s, what you see is a very weak democratic vision up against a very compelling fascist vision. I think many people find Trump's vision and his way of being super compelling, and they find Biden uncompelling. How Biden speaks to the issues that matter and becomes a compelling, charismatic leader, that might be the challenge. Well, Fred Turner, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Very glad to be here. And again, I've been speaking with Fred Turner, who's the Harry and Norma Chandler Professor of Communication at Stanford University. He's the author of a number of books, including Seeing Silicon Valley, Life Inside a fraying America, the democratic surround, multimedia and American liberalism from World War II to the psychedelic 60s, from counterculture to cyberculture, Stuart Brand, the whole Earth Network, and the rise of digital utopianism, and Echoes of Combat, the Vietnam War in American Memory. And he's written for newspapers and magazines ranging from the Boston Globe Sunday Magazine to Harper's. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America One more